Hello, my name is Aaron McMullen, and you're listening to Mondo Christ Almighty, a podcast devoted to the frequently wild and weird and wonderful world of cinematic, or primarily cinematic, portrayals of Jesus Christ. This week... Sam Cooke, there. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? One God amongst men singing about another. But, yes, indeed, uh, in this first proper episode of Mondo Christ Almighty, following the general sort of introduction that I uploaded a wee while back, uh, we're either starting right at the end or right at the beginning depending on how you look at it. Basically, we're concerning ourselves entirely with portrayals of the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. Taken as a whole, surely the most significant event in the New Testament, the most significant event in Christology, in Christianity, and certainly in the West, and in those places that the West set about Bible-bothering for centuries on end, and even in some of the very few places that it left alone, the most significant event of the last 2,000 years, regardless of whether it happened or it didn't. His mother was a virgin, and the angel Gabriel came down and put God's seed in her womb. That's how he was born. Then he was tortured and crucified. But three days later, he rose up from the dead and went up to heaven. Death was conquered. Amen. Do you understand what that means? Did you ever see this Jesus of Nazareth after he came back from the dead? I mean with your own eyes. No, but I saw a light that blinded me, and I heard his voice. He's a liar. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I want to talk to you. I was never crucified. I never came back from the dead. I'm a man like everybody else. Quiet. Why are you telling these lies? What are you talking about? I'm the son of Mary and Joseph. I'm the one who preached in Galilee. I had followers. We marched on Jerusalem. Pilate condemned me and God saved me. No, he didn't. Who are you talking about? Don't try and tell me what happened to me because I know. Just a minute. What's the matter with you? Look around you. Look at all these people. Look at their faces. Do you see how unhappy they are? Do you see how much they're suffering? Their only hope is the resurrected Jesus. I don't care whether you're Jesus or not. The resurrected Jesus will save the world, and that's what matters. Not every Jesus film covers the death and resurrection, um, but the vast majority do. And in fact, in some cases, that's all they do. Uh, plenty of Jesus films exist that could not give a tin tit on a swing about anything other than the death and resurrection of Christ. That being the case, this is obviously a topic that will not be exhausted uh, in a single episode of a podcast devoted to the discussion of Jesus films. Uh, it's something that we'll be returning to fairly frequently as the weeks and months go by. For now, however, uh, I'm going to be looking at two films only. Two very different films produced in very different cultural contexts at very different times, drawing on very different sources to largely very different ends, and presenting two, actually three, very different accounts of the events 
in question. These films, uh, both of which are absolutely fascinating, and both of which are occasionally deeply troubling, are, if you will please forgive my North Antrim pronunciation, Julien de Vivier's Golgotha, a French production from 1935, and Nadar Talibzadeh's Jesus, the Spirit of God, an Iranian film released in 2007, and actually an altered version of a picture that had already made a festival appearance in 2005, ultimately finding its fullest expression in a 10-hour miniseries. Um, but of the two feature-length films, Jesus, the Spirit of God, is by far the more intriguing, and that's largely down to the alterations that Taleb Zada made in the interim. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. It is... So the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ is one of a few episodes in the Jesus narrative that all four of the canonical Gospels deign to cover, albeit with some variations between them, uh, sometimes slight variations, sometimes quite notable variations. Most Jesus films, uh, if they do make it to this point, tend to pay less attention to the much less bombastic, perhaps much less cinematic version of events as recorded in the Gospel of John, and draw primarily from the three so-called synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, all of which are largely in sync with one another as far as this goes, and all of which advance a properly spectacular, apocalyptic account of the whole affair. The things that are common to all three synoptic gospels are on evidence in a huge array of Jesus films. Uh, the darkness that descends around noon and envelops the land for the next three hours, the crowds gathered about the place, all mocking and spitting and cursing and carrying on. Uh, the temple curtain ripped in two. The petrified centurions who realise all too late that this was indeed the Son of God. All of these things are present in all three synoptic gospels. To this, Matthew adds an earthquake and a widespread albeit short-lived, resurrection of the dead. All of this sort of uh, extremely exciting, uh, potentially very thrilling stuff is omitted in the Gospel of John, in which the account of the crucifixion itself is contained within the 19th chapter and has little to nothing to say about the Earth's temporary tumble into chaos and calamity, for John is more concerned with underscoring the fulfilment of prophecy than he is with rampant spectacle, uh, delivering a fairly matter-of-fact account of Christ's death on the cross that highlights, for example, uh, the fact that no bone in his body was broken, uh, a detail that harks back to the rules pertaining to the preparation of the Passover lamb as laid out in Exodus, and also with the words of Psalm 34 verse 20, He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. Father, into thy hand, As will be discussed in depth in an upcoming episode dedicated to the earliest on-screen portrayals of Christ, filmmakers were falling over themselves to get him battered about and up onto the cross before Fred Ott 
had barely had time to wipe his nose. Uh, Fred Ott's Sneeze, the earliest copyrighted motion picture, all about how one of Thomas Edison's assistants sneezes one time, was released in 1894. By 1898, five films depicting the death of Jesus had already been produced, four of which were, one assumes from the titles, pretty much focused entirely upon Christ's torments and sufferings. Now, they're all long lost, those films, so we can't say for sure, but they do all have titles like La Passion de Christ and The Passion Play and The Horrid's Passion Play, um, so we can assume what kind of shapes they were throwing. What has not been lost is The Life and Passion of Jesus Christ from 1898, which, again, I will talk about in detail uh, in a few episodes' time. But suffice it for now to say that it's only 10 minutes long and not 5 minutes have passed before Christ is being accosted by the authorities and fitted up with cross and crown. What these early filmmakers did not seem to be particularly troubled by were questions pertaining to whether or not it was permissible, whether or not it was blasphemous even, to portray Christ on film at all. Although I suppose most of these films could have circumnavigated those concerns by announcing themselves as filmed records of passion plays and in framing events so, as documents of performances, then they were also announcing the fact that within the diegesis, the technical term for everything that goes on within the world of the film, these are actors performing specific roles. So that is not supposed to be Jesus as such. Within the actual narrative of the film, that is an actor portraying Jesus. We aren't watching Jesus being tormented and assailed, we're watching actors engaging in an age-old display of remembrance and communion, couched in the trappings of a very specific form of theatrical performance. In the first few decades of the 20th century, however, uh, a discourse did emerge surrounding the ethics of portraying Christ on screen, when the films were not about actors playing Jesus, but were about Jesus himself. And a lot of questions were asked about how those portrayals should be handled. In D.W. Griffith's Intolerance from 1916, uh, a very staid Christ is very visible in those scenes depicting episodes from the Gospel narratives. But by the time of Fred Niblo's Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ, in 1925, he was reduced to a sort of ethereal off-screen presence that interacted with the mise-en-scene, or the things within the frame, uh, at certain junctures, but was never directly represented face-on. You occasionally see things from his perspective, which one would imagine must raise issues in itself. I mean, it's one thing to visually represent the Son of God, it's quite another to propose to occupy his head. Uh, or you see a hand or an arm entering the frame here or there, but you don't actually see his face. In the following year's King of Kings, Cecil B. DeMille would take a very different approach, planting a Jesus not all that dissimilar to Griffith's, front and centre. In the first film we're looking at here, uh, De Vivier's Golgotha, released ten years after Ben-Hur and boasting the first talking Jesus of the sound era, we can see both approaches at work. Le film que nous avons l'honneur de vous présenter est interprété par messieurs Harry Bord, Jean Gabin et madame Edwige Feuillère, messieurs Charles Grandval, André Baquet, Lucas Grédoux, Hubert Prélier et madame Juliette Verneuil. Monsieur Robert Levigon a matérialisé l'image du Christ.
Golgotha covers the period of time stretching from Christ's entry into Jerusalem to his trial and subsequent crucifixion. Its narrative combining elements lifted directly from the Gospels, some canonical, some not, and scenes devised by the filmmakers themselves, in which are depicted uh, the goings-on behind the scenes in the temple, the camera prowling the corridors of the Sanhedrin as Jewish officials debate and argue amongst themselves, uh, trying to figure out just what's to be done with this rabble-rousing Jesus of Nazareth in the wake of his arrival in the city. Scenes of the former sort of stock, uh, largely utilising dialogue lifted directly from the Bible, or at least mimicking the language of the Bible, all verily this and verily that, contrast quite markedly in tone with scenes of the latter class, in which dialogue that we might cautiously deem realistic is at the forefront, uh, a lot of artfully artless squabbling in everyday tongues, with even a fuck thrown in for good measure, as officials watch from the top of a huge tower uh, the crowds gathering round about Jesus on the streets below, one of many sequences that lean heavily on the exquisite geometry of German Expressionism. This is a constant uh, throughout the film, in fact, this back and forth from extremely elevated or extremely distanced perspectives in which we're often aligned with the authorities, observing all of this clamouring on, uh, to scenes in which the camera is virtually running alongside folks on the street, brilliantly evoking the sense of being in the midst of absolute mass hysteria, as folk thump and howl and cheer and rally around our man, or in later scenes, as they mock and spit and curse and jeer. Jesus enters the narrative pretty early on. Uh, his entry into the city on the back of a donkey is one of the first scenes in the film, and one of the most memorable, and most memorably busy. But we don't actually get a look at him until almost half an hour of screen time has passed. Prior to that, we're dealing with a lot of visual obscurity and ambiguity, uh, a lot of manic bustling about the frame, uh, a few POV shots, a lot of palm leaves and outstretched hands and pleading. When he gets to kicking up fuss in the temple, there's the odd hand throwing this into the air or overturning that. But again, the register is absolute chaos. Uh, there are sheep and camels and cows that are fleeing the scene. There are furious traders running this way and that. And we're planted right there in the guts of all of this turbulence, trying to decipher exactly what we're seeing and who we're seeing, wondering if that might be Jesus over there or one of his disciples or just some anonymous traitor, or a dastardly old scribe taking notes, or whoever. Our first proper look at him arrives in the form of a long shot taken from behind as he stands on the steps of the temple giving the whole den of thieves speech, and really we're observing the crowd as much as we're observing Christ, just as the authorities are scrutinising the response to Jesus' utterances as much as they're scrutinising the content of the utterances themselves. But when we do come to get a good look at Jesus, well, I'm going to go ahead and say that the Jesus of de Vivier's Golgotha, played by Robert Lee Vagan, is one of the most incredible, awe-inspiring Jesuses of any Jesus film that I have ever seen. Oftentimes, uh, the Jesus film will foreground particular characteristics in order to humanise Christ, emphasising his charisma, his charm, his compassion, his empathy, how gentle he is, how quick-witted he is, how learned, how children will flock towards him and hypocrites will wilt before him. Uh, in films like The Last Temptation of Christ, the human digs in even further, manifesting as an ongoing inner conflict between the pull of the preordained and that of the flesh 
and of free will and of the serenity of domesticity. In Christology, which is basically the branch of theology devoted to the exploration of Christ's duality, representations of Jesus which hone in on these more uh, relatable human characteristics would be considered to be representations imbued with a low Christology. Golgotha, on the other hand, absolutely presents what can only be described as a very high Christology indeed. Now to help get our heads around that, uh, we can turn to Lloyd Bow and what he says on the topic in an essay on the aforementioned Scorsese adaptation of Last Temptation of Christ. It's worth quoting at length. Uh, he says, Whenever filmmakers approach the character of Jesus Christ, Inevitably, there is a Christology, discernible and operating in the image they create. The works of these artists reveal an implicit Christology. They assume a position in reference to Jesus as a historical figure and as the Christ. Some tend to privilege more the dimension of his divinity, what is popularly referred to as a high Christology. Others tend to privilege especially his humanity, what is popularly referred to as a low Christology. The former does not necessarily exclude the latter, and vice versa. A filmmaker can emphasize Jesus' humanity, while at the same time admitting or allowing his divinity. However, some directors, often those with a low Christology, go so far in their chosen emphasis that the divinity of the resulting Jesus is either denied outright or is so obscured that in effect it is denied. Unquote. Whatever we might say of de Vivier's Christology, we certainly cannot accuse him of denying or obscuring his Christ's divinity. Golgotha, or Behold the Man, as it was rather ironically known in some territories, is one of a very few Jesus films that I have seen that minimize Christ's humanity to such a degree and ramp up the divinity to such thunderously bone-shaking levels that he actually becomes terrifying at times. This is a Christ that from the off inspires awe and wonder and a kind of tingling sort of fear that niggles away at the back of the neck and the tips of the fingers. This is not a Jesus that inspires devotion because of any sort of, uh, you know, meek shall inherit the earth type platitudes or parables. This is a Jesus that inspires devotion because he gives the impression that if you don't pick up your bed and walk beside him, he will set fire to you with a clap of his hands. At no point are we under any illusion that this is any sort of everyday kind of preacher or half-price prophet that we're dealing with. When we are looking at Le Vagan's Christ, we are looking God square in the mug, and it is a frequently disquieting sight especially given how rarely we get those kinds of unobstructed looks at his face. Um, his countenance never becomes overly familiar and so never becomes comfortable. There's one shot of him in particular um, as he's being led down some steps following his arrest uh, and he looks down towards the crowd gathered below and locks on Peter. I think it's Peter. Uh, it is in the middle of the whole triple denial deal, and you see his face in close-up, but it's mostly shrouded in darkness, except for the eyes, which are absolutely blazing white. I mean, for my silver, it is one of the most sublime images in any Jesus film ever made. And I'm talking sublime in the awesome, terrifying, uh, overwhelming, Burkean sense of the word. In that darkness is discerned the magnitude of the infinite, and in the piercing of the eyes it is stabbing not only at Peter, or Judas, or whoever, but stabbing at us alongside. It's among my favourite shots of Jesus in any Jesus film ever made, and it's a shot of a Jesus portrayed by a Nazi. Now, 
on that. Uh, Golgotha, directed by de Vivier, one of the great masters of early French cinema, was produced in 1935, and it appears that much of the horror of the era the film sort of soaked up like Stefan's sponge. That is to say, there is a mile-wide streak of blistering anti-Semitism running through the thing from its opening moments until its close. And this is perhaps partly why the film, although praised around the houses most everywhere else, was banned at the time of release by the British censors, who decreed that no British eyes would ever look upon it. Although, saying that, the ferocity uh, for the time of the passion sequences probably contributed to that as well. In addition to drawing from the canonical Gospels, Golgotha also draws upon the non-canonical Gospel of Nicodemus, and most pertinently, the Gospel of Peter, in which, for various reasons, uh, largely political, Pilate is completely exonerated and the blame for Christ's death is laying solely on the shoulders of the Jewish people. For as much as Golgotha is a film about Jesus, it's a film about the duplicitous, self-serving, manipulative, and thoroughly reprehensible Jewish authorities and the machinations of their devilry. So it is a film that is at once technically and formally dazzling and replete with moments of genuine aching beauty, and yet also a film that is ugly beyond comprehension. In her book, uh, Judas Iscariot, Damned or Redeemed, a critical examination of the portrayal of Judas in Jesus films, Carl Hebron argues very convincingly that Golgotha is anti-Semitic to its bones, and basically constitutes a piece of fascist propaganda. It's pretty hard to argue with her. Uh, the portrayal of the Jewish authorities is absolutely seething with contempt. The blood libel is threaded throughout the picture and finds expression in a number of ways, most obviously in lines of dialogue like drop your blood on us and on our children, and in Jesus' admonishment that the daughters of Israel weep not for me, but for yourselves and for your children. The film goes to great lengths, uh, visually and otherwise, to mark Christ as apart from the Jews around him, including his disciples, and his portrayal of Judas Iscariot, who sort of sneaks about the periphery of things throughout, observing rather than participating, and who is excluded from the Eucharist, conforms in many respects with the horrendous derogatory portrayals of Jewish people to be found in anti-Semitic propaganda of the period. The sort of anti-Semitic propaganda being disseminated by people like Robert Levagan. At the same time though, the film subverts Judas's relationship with the Sanhedrin as is traditionally understood. In the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Judas scurries off to the chief priests of his own volition and basically tells them that he'll bring Jesus to them for a price. This is where the famous 30 pieces of silver come into play, although neither Mark nor Luke make mention of exactly how much Judas received. In Luke, the whole affair is blamed on the devil, who has entered into Judas in some way and driven him to seek out the temple authorities and, again, tell them that he'll lead them to Jesus for a price. In de Vivier's telling, it is Judas who is approached by the authorities, not the other way around. It is they who attempt to bribe him. He doesn't go asking for money, they dangle it before him. And when it comes to his demise, as Hebron very astutely notes, we never actually see him hang himself, as per the account in Matthew, although we do get a staggeringly beautifully composed shot from a distance of him tossing the rope over the branch of a tree. But it never goes any further than that, the implication being that he, or rather the nefarious, contemptible characteristics of the Jews he represents, did not die there on that rope, and are at work in the world even now. 
There is some question about whether or not uh, de Vivier was a full-on fascist. I mean, he did leave France during the occupation, and he did, in 1940, uh, direct The Heart of the Nation, a drama about a Parisian family that spans three generations and three wars, and is now considered, as Hebron points out, a classic of wartime resistance, which at the time of release was banned by Goebbels and didn't materialise in French cinemas until after the war. That being said, Golgotha is not the work of someone especially hostile to fascist ideology, and Duvivier clearly knew what he was doing when he made the very pointed decision to cast in the role of Jesus Christ an unapologetic and very vocal anti-Semite and Nazi sympathiser Robert Levigan, a man who not only bears a striking resemblance to neo-Nazi, black meddler, cultural vandal and convicted murderer Count Grishnot, but who also openly disseminated fascist propaganda, who generated fascist propaganda and who following the liberation was sentenced to 10 years hard labour for collaborating with the Nazis. Of those 10 years, he served three before taking off, like so many other Nazi sympathisers and collaborators, to live out the rest of his life in Argentina. Now, it may well be the case that for many viewers, um, perhaps even most viewers, all of that completely negates the numerous ways in which de Vivier's film is quite simply astonishing. I can't tell you what to think about that one way or the other, but I would say, in this respect, Golgotha is hardly unique. This is far from the only fascist propaganda or propaganda-adjacent picture of the time that is as technically breathtaking as it is morally and spiritually repugnant. But our focus here is on how the film deals with Christ's death and resurrection. And again, we're talking a virtuosic bit of filmmaking. Um, when he was publicising his Passion of the Christ, itself, of course, dogged by accusations of anti-Semitism, Mel Gibson insisted that he had paid very little attention to other cinematic portrayals of Christ or the Passion, that there were very few Jesus films produced prior to his masterpiece of pseudo-masochistic splatter and splash that exerted any sort of influence over it at all. But I would be very surprised to learn that he hadn't seen Golgotha at some point, as some of the similarities are just a bit too striking, for better or worse. De Vivier's scenes in Gethsemane, for example, are suffused with the very same eeriness that is in evidence right there at the opening of Gibson's film. Although Golgotha doesn't tip over into outright gothic horror like the Passion does within its first couple of minutes, the textures of Golgotha's Gethsemane emerge throughout a very quietly sinister sequence. The authorities approaching in silence with torches aloft, uh, the flames licking away at gnarled branches as this ominous procession weaves through the trees. When they do make off with Jesus, what unfolds is a sort of mini-symphony of cruelty that peaks with Christ carrying the cross through the streets, toppling over here and there as he is stoned and spat at and kicked. The scene very closely and very deliberately mirrors his arrival in Jerusalem at the outset of the picture, right down to the use of POV and the multiplicity of faces barging into the frame from either side. But where in those earlier scenes the crowds rallied around him to exalt him, here they're delighting in his destruction. They continue to shout and holler and shriek as the three crosses ascend Golgotha itself. Now these are scenes that we observe from great distances, but the screen is absolutely teeming with wild, clamouring life. In Ulysses, uh, Stephen Dedalus famously defines God as a shout in the street, 
And I suppose that here we can say that God is any number of shouts in any number of streets. For each and every individual involved in this frenzied bit of hounding is, after all, acting as per God's itinerary laid out way back ages ago in the pages of the prophets. If those ancient old prophecies were to be fulfilled, or if the authors of the Gospels were to convince us all that those prophecies had been fulfilled, then this had to be the way of it. Every curse and every jibe and every stone thrown is a curse and jibe and stone throw charged by the Lord. This is God in action, which makes the whole Christ killer stuff even more confounding. For if Christ had to be put to trial and had to die at the hands of the authorities, that all that was to be fulfilled was indeed fulfilled, that all of mankind may be saved, then surely the authorities were doing the Lord's work rather than colluding with any sort of Satan. The many Jesus films recognize this bind vis-a-vis -vis per Judas. Some even exonerate him altogether on these grounds. But a very few extend the same courtesy to the Jewish authorities. Golgotha certainly does not. The crucifixion itself is, predictably, pure, unbridled spectacle. The clouds career across the heavens as if chased by rabid hounds. The sun disappears, a sort of visual pun that many Jesus pictures employ and enjoy. Uh, the darkness swells, lightning rips the sky, winds whip about the place, and all the while the camera holds on a medium shot of Christ on the cross, silhouetted against these tumultuous goings-on, before eventually he drops his head, and here the crowd is gripped with a fevered terror, racing then from the cross as flocks of birds shriek past and robes billow every which way. Again, we watch alongside the authorities, from their positions of precarious privilege, de Vivier ducking into the Gospel of Nicodemus for a moment, to allow for some discussion amongst the scribes as they come to the terrible realisation that they have indeed, as likely as not, just killed the Son of God. De Vivier devotes about five minutes to events following the resurrection which is about four and three-quarter minutes more than Mel Gibson devotes to them in The Passion. And it is within these five minutes that another of my very favourite shots of the whole film arrives. This is in the scene depicting the resurrected Christ appearing to two of his disciples as they travel along the road to Emmaus. The event is mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew but a much fuller account resides in the 24th chapter of Luke. As ever, I'm reading from the King James Version, which proceeds as follows. And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about threescore furlongs. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem? and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days. And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. And then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? 
and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. De Vivier's realization of this encounter is absolutely beautiful in its simplicity. The story is told in flashback as the disciples in question excitedly relay the news to their fellows that this stranger in their midst is indeed the risen Jesus and that he walked alongside them as they made their journey. We see a shot of the road itself upon which the sun is casting two shadows and then very gradually a third shadow swells beside them and beside them it remains. It's another utterly gorgeous moment in a film so often marked by an uncommon brutishness and a venom that curdles the blood. So, uh, the second film I want to look at in this episode of Mondo Christ Almighty is, as I said at the outset, the 2007 Iranian picture Jesus the Spirit of God, a 90-odd minute rehearsal of the Jesus story as understood by observers of an Islamic disposition, pulling from neither Matthew, Mark, Luke nor John although it does contain episodes very similar to episodes recounted in those, but instead fashioning its Jesus from the accounts of his life and ministry and ultimate ascension as figure in the Quran and in the Gospel of Barnabas, which has the distinction of being an apocryphal and most certainly pseudopigraphal gospel written from an explicitly Islamic perspective. For this reason, it should not therefore be confused, as it sometimes is, with the thoroughly Christological and similarly non-canonical epistle of Barnabas, which wasn't written by Barnabas either, and isn't even an epistle. The Gospel of Barnabas makes for a fascinating read if you are familiar with the Christian Gospels, and a rather lengthy read also. It's easily as long as all four of the Biblical Gospels combined. It has a fairly storied history too, uh, references to the Gospel in its current incarnation, or near enough, date back to the 17th century, and in the time since then it has passed through the hands of innumerable princes and kings and popes in a number of iterations, before eventually re-emerging in the 20th century as a key text in Islamic literature. Now many scholars agree that it was probably Italian in origin. Uh, there are certain stylistic qualities and even certain episodes that align it with the work of Dante, for example. But whatever its provenance, uh, it does seem to have been altered significantly in some respects in the centuries since it first appeared. As the 20th century wore on uh, and the gospel became more readily available, it attained a reputation as an incendiary, potentially world-upending work that would lay waste to Christianity as we know it. And this seems to be how Taleb Zada understands it. In a 2008 interview with Jeffrey Fleischman of the Los Angeles Times, he says, I pray for Christians. They've been misled. They will realize one day the true story. Barnabas, he continues, is a missing link the world is not ready to accept. And Jesus, the Spirit of God, did indeed incense a fair number of Christian viewers. Uh, one blogger quoted in that Los Angeles Times piece condemns the film as another piece of satanic propaganda intended to accomplish no meaningful purpose in this world. Although Talib Zada, uh, who claims to have been drawn to Jesus since seeing a reproduction of Da Vinci's Last Supper when he was a boy of seven or eight years old, 
is far more respectful towards Christ than many self-professed Christian filmmakers of recent years have been. Anyway, uh, the author or authors of the Gospel of Barnabas, whoever they were, were clearly very familiar with the canonical Gospels, for there are many things contained within it that are basically lifted directly from them. And that can make for a quite uncanny sort of reading experience here and there. Um, it's quite startling to find all the sort of uh, consider the lilies of the field stuff uh, and all the business about curing the lepers and going out into the wilderness nestled alongside lines like And when day was come, he descended from the mountain and chose twelve, whom he called apostles among whom is Judas, who was slain upon the cross. Now that's the first sort of major indication that whatever's about to unfold in the course of this gospel, it's going to depart significantly from the trajectory of the biblical narratives at certain critical junctures. In the Christian New Testament, uh, Judas is subject to a couple of different fates, depending on what book of the New Testament you're reading, uh, he either hangs himself over the head of the guilt that's eating away at him following his betrayal of Jesus, or quite simply, um, quite astonishingly, if you're not expecting it, he just falls over in a field one day and fucking explodes. That's how the book of Acts gets rid of him anyway. Uh, this is an example of what is known as a biblical doublet. Uh, where we are privy to the same story twice, sometimes in the same book, and sometimes with very conspicuous alterations. But at no point in the New Testament is it inferred that Judas is crucified. But in the Gospel of Barnabas, it transpires, he is. Now the hows and whys and wherefores of that are part of what makes Jesus the Spirit of God such a memorable and distinctive piece of work within the Jesus film tradition. It's a film that actually has a few things in common uh, with de Vivier's Golgotha, although it is nowhere near the masterpiece that that film is, however compelling it may be in various ways. Uh, it's very unevenly paced, it's inconsistent, and it relies a lot on this sort of solemn voiceover to tie its scenes together. Perhaps unsurprisingly, given that it's an Iranian film, uh, the production of which spanned most of the first decade of the 21st century, directed by a vocal supporter of Ahmadinejad, and who believes 9-11 was an inside job, it too has a very unsettling streak of anti-Semitism running right through it. It too weaves the blood libel throughout its narrative. Although in this case, it might be fairer to say that the film is anti-Zionist rather than outright anti-Semitic. Its portrayal of Judas as a figure on the fringes of things who observes but rarely participates also chimes with de Vivier's characterization. And it too, following a few very brief, very mist shrouded shots of a few berobed and staff wielding longhairs making their way across the hills and pastures, opens amidst the chaos of an occupied Jerusalem, although interestingly, given the context of the film's production, the colonizers are not the villains of the piece, despite the harsh laws they impose on the rightful occupants of the contested land. Right from the very first scenes, there are cockfights going on in the street. There are folks bustling this way and that. There are crowds gathered and traders scrambling after their goods as market stalls are knocked all roads and directions. The city awaiting both the arrival of Pontius Pilate and also this Jesus of Nazareth, prophet of Galilee. Eventually, into the midst of this turmoil, Jesus does indeed arrive. Here, looking not so much like Count Grishnot, but rather more like a young Billy Connolly, from back when Billy Connolly was busy achieving a cult stardom of his own, partly on the back of yet another unconventional spin on the gospel narrative. 
itself a perennial fixture of his early stand-up sets, which gained him acclaim and notoriety in equal measure. As a matter of fact, I'm not going to give you the story today. I'm going for to give you the prophecy. Ooh, you hear that? This is me. Do you hear that? Prophecy, eh? No bother, you're a big one, eh? Prophecy's never been just like that. Eh? What's a prophecy, anyway? Big one says, look, a prophecy tells you what's going to happen tomorrow. Says, what about 3.30 tomorrow? <laughs> I'm thinking, says, see you, Judas, you're getting a mad tits. <laughs> In any case, uh, this is a very distinguished look that this Jesus is rocking. All bleached blonde hair and eyes wholly awash with the mystic. It's also a look that the actor portraying Jesus, Ahmad Soleimani Naya, a one-time soldier in the Iranian army and a welder for the same atomic energy agency that George W. Bush decried as a front for nuclear weapon manufacture was required to maintain for several years as Taleb Zada continued to add to his film, clocking up hours and hours of additional material as the years wore on, material that eventually found its way into that monumental miniseries I mentioned earlier. It's soon revealed that Naya's Jesus differs from the Jesus of most other Jesus films in one very important way. This Jesus is not, and does not claim to be, the Son of God, although he is the result of a virgin birth, and he is capable of performing miracles. But ultimately, he's fulfilling the role that in the Christian narratives falls to John the Baptist. He's a prophet, but he's here to preach the coming of someone even greater than himself. And that someone even greater than himself is the prophet Muhammad. But, as I said, he still carries on for the most part, much as he does in Jesus films that approach the subject from a Christian perspective. He still performs a lot of miracles, and he gladly performs them. Um, sometimes in the Gospel of Barnabas, it, it seems like it's almost a chore for him to have to heal a leper or bid walk someone that was hitherto crawling on hands and knees. There's a lot of sighing that goes on throughout that gospel. Sighing that at times is so persistent that it almost causes the pages to flutter in your hand. Here, uh, he is a picture of joyous altruism. Interestingly, though, virtually all of the miracles he performs are performed on women or at the behest of women. He meets a woman on the street who can neither speak nor hear, and he cures her. He invites a hunchbacked woman to stand up straight, and she does. He raises Lazarus from the dead, but he does it because Mary Magdalene has asked him to. Earlier, he has taken Mary herself off to one side, away out of the frame altogether, to rid her of the demons under the influence of which she has been spitting and wailing since time immemorial. Most striking of all is the moment when, as in the Gospel of John, he intervenes in the stoning of the woman accused of adultery, a trap set for him by the temple authorities. Uh, the whole let he without sin cast the first stone business is realized as an especially visually arresting sequence in which Jesus draws a square on the ground, which then becomes as a mirror and which casts back upon the assailants a series of horrific reflections, uh, their faces distorted in all manner of frightful ways as their own sins warp and blacken their countenances beyond measure. As in the biblical accounts, it is episodes such as these that cause the temple authorities to turn on Jesus and to demand his execution. At one point, uh, those gathered in the temple attempt to stone him to death there and then, but very soon things get so out of hand and anarchy is the colour of the day 
that Jesus just sort of wanders out of the place without any of them noticing, so that they all end up stoning one another. It's like something out of Life of Brian. But the most interesting moment in the film arrives just after the scenes depicting the Last Supper. Suddenly, we fade to black and some text appears. And what it announces is that what we are about to see is what happens next according to the Christian narrative. There then follows a fairly brief succession of scenes in which Christ is brought before Pilate, who tells him that the Jews have ordered his execution, but that he doesn't want any part of it. Uh, Christ refuses to speak. Before we know it, he's being thrown about the streets. He's being tied to a whipping post. He's being lashed. And Pilate is watching this all from a window, saying, well, maybe they'll change their minds. They do not change their minds. Uh, barely 20 seconds of screen time have passed before he's up on the cross, and the last thing we see is Mary Magdalene weeping at his bloodied feet. Then, the action comes to a halt another time, and a second burst of on-screen text announces that what we're going to see now, and for the remainder of the film, is the continuation of events according to Islamic sources and the Gospel of Barnabas. Now we see Jesus pleading in the darkness that God might save him from those who wished to kill him. And lo and behold, the angel Gabriel appears and quotes the Lord, who says, O son of Mary, I shall take you from this world tonight and raise you to myself. Which he does. As the disciples lie sleeping on the floor around the boat, Jesus is told that his appointed time has come, and he ascends a set of stairs towards a blinding white light that envelops him and knots him away. At this point, Judas returns from his meeting with the authorities, and now he too is enveloped in light. But this is a light that seems to scald him, for he raises his hands to his face and he screams, and the next thing we know, as the voiceover informs us, Judas has changed amazingly in speech and face to be like Jesus. Which is to say that Judas now inhabits the body that Jesus was inhabiting only moments before. So this is how Judas, in this particular account, comes to be crucified. Because the authorities come looking for Jesus, and when they find Jesus, or think they've found him, they take him away. And everything that happens to Jesus in the Jesus story that Christians will be familiar with now happens. It's just that it's happening to Judas. This, in turn, uh, transforms a few of what we might call the satellite episodes pertaining to the crucifixion. So Peter's denial, for example, um, is here not a denial of Christ. It's a denial that the person under arrest is Jesus. Because it's not Jesus, it's Judas. When he says, that man is not my teacher, he's saying it because he knows it to be true. That is not his teacher. His teacher is now in heaven. And Judas is being whipped and lashed like there's no tomorrow. And next thing we know, he's up on the cross. Uh, it's perhaps worth mentioning here that uh, in the really rather wonderful animated picture, uh, The Miracle Maker, Judas imagines himself crucified for his transgression. But that's a different thing altogether to what's going on here. So what of the Jews, then, we might ask? Uh, at one point, a Jewish elder remarks to Pilate that his people are, quote, afraid that this man's blood will leave a permanent stain. So there's some discussion about how uh, perhaps the pagans can be blamed in some way instead. But of all of this Christ-killer business, the Jews are not absolved. And the film's narrator makes that very clear, informing us, and I quote, that God set a seal on the cruel hearts of the children of Israel for their disbelief. And in a direct quote from the Quran, we are assured that the Jews remain condemned, quote, because of their saying, 
we have slain the Christ Jesus, son of Mary, Allah's messenger. They slew him not, nor crucified, but it appeared so unto them. So even though the Jewish authorities did not actually kill Christ, because they believed they did, they might as well have. So it's a sort of honey trap that God had set for reasons best known to himself. So, there you have it. Uh, two very different films, three very different takes on the crucifixion. But we are far from done with that. Uh, as I said, it's a topic we'll be returning to again and again as the podcast moseys on. But that is more than enough for now. Uh, next time, we're going to be confronted with a very conflicting, although certainly no less controversial, Jesus Christ, as we spend a bit of time with Nigel Wingrove's infamous arthouse non-sploitation visions of ecstasy. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed the podcast, uh, please, you know, like and follow and subscribe and all the rest. Uh, if you know someone you think might get something from it, please do nudge them towards it. Uh, if you're using sites or apps that allow for reviews or star ratings or things like this, please consider helping me out there too. Uh, and you can follow me on Twitter at MondoChrist. And there's also a website, mondochristalmighty.com. If you wish to contact me by email, you can do so at mondochristalmighty at gmail.com. Um, I'm Aaron McMullen. This has been Mondo Christ Almighty. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>